What is the common denominator of Harlan Marx, Amy Steele, Christopher Walken, Richard Dreyfuss, Seal Award, and Chris Cooper? We have all been acting students of my guest today, my real life Kaminsky, Bob McAndrew. Let me tell you about Bob McAndrew. He was hired by Lucille Ball to head her talent program at Paramount Pictures in Hollywood. He's the former assistant to the great late acting teacher, Wynn Hanman, who died, I think, last year due to COVID-19. Yes, Bob? Yes. And he was pretty, he was like my dad's age. He was like almost 100 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob has studied with Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, Michael Howard, Charles Conrad. And Bob's teaching draws from a wide range of sources, including his years as a movie coach working with directors like John Huston, Alan Pakula, and Luke Besson. He's taught internationally in London, Paris, Barcelona, Madrid, and Buenos Aires. His former students, famous ones, are Raul Julia, Chris Walken, Chris Cooper, Celia Ward, John Stamos, Gloria Rubin, David Paymer, who I'm going to get to in a little bit because I want to talk about him because something he did recently. Uh, Corbin Burson, Tom Selleck, Sam Elliott, and John Lindstrom. I can personally attest that his techniques and coaching gives actors the tools to play and have fun, to let go of tension, to build a strong character, and allows act that allows actors to take risks and feel confident about those choices. So welcome, Bob McAndrew. Thank you, Harlan. It is really good to see you, Bob. You do. Wow. It's bringing back some wonderful memories. Yes. Where do I begin? I'm going to ask you, and I jokingly referenced Kaminsky in, in, my, in my intro, what are your thoughts about uh, that series with Douglas? And in, 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 he also studied with Wynn, right? And you no. worked with Wynn. Yeah, he actually did, yes. Well, you know, I, I didn't really watch it. Maybe I, maybe I watched it maybe once or twice. That's it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I didn't have much interest in it had students that go have gone on to great careers and you've worked to rub elbows with some outstanding actors so tell us about chris cooper who's a really outstanding actor yeah i mean that that was a privilege actually to meet him and to work with him and uh i remember one time do you remember the actor david proval he was in the shawshank redemption sure he came to the class one day just to observe just to visit he was in new york it happened to be a moment when Chris Cooper was doing a scene and David whispered to me, he says, God almighty. He said, who is that guy? He said, he's got a kick like a mule, you know? So that power that Chris Cooper, I mean, the thing I always tell people is that whenever Chris Cooper did anything in class, he, he put in the same amount of work as one would put in if you were doing a movie. I mean, it was, it was that, he was that professional right from the beginning which tells you something about his character, that he was pretty much certain that he was going to create this career. And it was like, it wasn't just coming to an acting class and kind of practicing. He was actually getting ready for his, for his next move. So he was fully prepared. I mean, I really, when I say coach him, you know, sometimes what you do as a coach is you, 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 you really just leave the actor alone completely. And if it isn't broken, you know, you don't need to fix it. Like Lee Strasberg would say, don't take a, an aspirin unless you have a headache. So sometimes like with an actor like him, there really was, it was just about, wow, that's perfect. The way that you're, the, the way that you're working, the way that you're listening, the way that you're allowing the other actor to land on you. 
So it was it was very easy coaching him. Tell me about you know I said to mention David Paymer. I I yeah. saw him in in Mrs. Maisel. Have you have you caught him in Mrs. Maisel? I haven't. I haven't. But I did watch him in. Um, he played a judge. Uh, what was that? series i guess it was done about 10 years ago it was about a woman who was a lawyer i think it was on cbs he played it he played it oh, well with uh, margolis um i think i think you're with talking Mar about uh margolis, yeah. i think the good the good wife the good wife right and so he played a judge in that and it was like wow there's another actor by the way again like chris cooper he was just right there he was perfect he, he, he sort of jumped out of that class, went out to Los Angeles, and never, ever stopped working. And now he's on Broadway, Billy Crystal. You know that? I, no. What, yeah, what, they're what, doing a revival of Mr. Saturday Night, Billy Crystal. Yeah, so it's like there's a guy who's another amazing, amazing, just so easy to work with. Well, I'll tell you, he did a scene with... Um... And Mrs. Maisel, and he plays uh, uh, an, an agent manager. And he was sitting on a park bench and looking at a building. And he was so present and so in the moment, which were things that you taught about being present in the moment, and so relaxed in himself. And he was eating an ice cream. And I felt that I was like sitting on the park bench with him. It was that intimate. Yeah, he just he just makes it look easy. Uh, you know, another actor that was, you know, all I had to really do was just <clears throat> give him the right material to work on and, you know, and he he was he was wonderful to work with. Well, what people surprised you after they left their cl your class and they went on to a career that you you ne didn't necessarily have and you don't have to say if you don't want to. Uh, an expectation of, 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 of success. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about Corbin Bernson. He'll, okay. he'll, he'll tell you this if you, if you ever speak to him. He, he was going through a kind of a funny stage. He, he left Los Angeles, he came to New York, and he was kind of hanging out at Club 54, Studio 54, practically every night. And he would come in, he'd be in the classroom, and he wasn't really giving his best. So one day I took him into the uh, into that little prop room that we had at Wynn's studio. Oh, I remember you it. Know, and I spoke to him and I said, listen, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you've really got to get it together here. You know, you're, you're shortchanging yourself. Anyway, he tells me to this day that that conversation turned him around. It, it was true. I mean, he really, really then started to really dig in and then suddenly he went out to Los Angeles and he did an, he did an audition for uh, Stephen Bochco for L.A. Law. He told me that in the impulse, he had an impulse when he was doing the, uh, the audition to kick a chair and the chair kind of flew across the room. Anyway, he was hired. He got that job. He stayed with that for the entire eight years. You know, and, and there's another actor who never stops working. Yeah, he works all the time. He was great in Major League. I don't know if you ever saw that, where he plays the, the baseball player. No, I don't think I saw that. But anyway, yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a nice surprise to see him, him turn around and, and, go, and really go for it. Now, on your blog, you, you, uh, on one of your emails, when we were exchanging emails, you mentioned De Niro and McQueen. What was your experience of rubbing elbows with those guys, working with those guys? 
with the yeah, well, McQueen. In, in 19, I think it was 1975, I had a job uh, teaching at a new school in Hollywood. It was called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. And part of, part of what I did was I interviewed these major stars that would come in. They would have these, there was a big room there and a lot of people were invited. So I interviewed De Niro, I interviewed Nick Nolte, I interviewed Steve McQueen, you know, and so on. And um, the night that I interviewed De Niro, apparently he had just finished making um, Taxi Driver. So he came in, and it was a funny kind of story because when he came in, uh, there was a platform, a wooden platform, and one of the steps was broken. He had a cup of coffee in his hand and the coffee flew up and it went all over him. <laughs> he, he was like dripping, <laughs> dripping with coffee. I mean, it was like a really, really tough moment. But, you know, he's such an interesting guy that he, he didn't, it didn't really phase him. And then I asked him a lot of questions. I asked him what it was like working with Kazan, what it was like working with Coppola, and what it was like working with, uh, uh, who was the other, uh, Kazan, Coppola, and um, who was it? There was one other, um, Scorsese. So wow. I asked him about, you know, what his experience was like working with those three directors, and it was wonderful. I mean, you know, back in those days, people didn't really videotape. I mean, it's a shame that those, those interviews were not recorded. You know, it's so funny that you say that. I'm going to assume that you videotape your classes now. Yeah, I, I do. I, I'm, it's on camera now. Everything is on camera. Because I remember watching people work whose art is lost to the ages. Just, I, I mean, just stuff that was like, I, I would walk out of there and I would literally be high from the work that somebody else did. And I was an audience member. And I said, I have the privilege of walking out, seeing a great scene by somebody who um, has no reputation, but in my mind is this giant. And, and that happened in the, you know, in the rooms that, you know, you led. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an interesting theory and it was explained to me once by Anthony Zerbe. Do you remember Anthony Zerbe? Yeah. Great. Super actor. Yeah, Again, one was like, um, how, how does, how did it go? It was kind of like macrocosm, microcosm. Sometimes people think, well, I'm only in this little class and there's only 10 people and nobody knows who I am or anything like that. But his theory was that if you get hot here in this class by giving it your everything you've got, that reverberates in the universe, microcosm, macrocosm, tiny things that we do sometimes, you know, if we give, if we give everything we've got, it does make a difference. It does. It and, really and that's, does. That's a hard lesson, really, to actually get. But I mean, that's a, that's a big one. So it's kind of like um, I think it was um, there was a book written by Castaneda, and he he quotes uh, this brujo that he wrote about a guy named Don Juan uh, Matus, and he said, "Make each act on earth your your last act. Give give it everything that you've got, everything that you do, whatever it might be." Now, of course, we don't do that. But when we remind ourselves of that, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, give it your all. And, you know, it, it, it's so funny because it, that applies. It doesn't just apply to acting. It applies to really, you know, whatever you do in your life, whether you're a baseball player or you're a salesperson. Like I, I became a salesperson. And I have to tell you, your techniques 
and you could you could put this and I'll write it on your on on your uh, on your studio uh, website. But those techniques help people be in the moment, be present, and and give it your all, even in your an everyday job. Like I was a salesperson, I learned to control my my emotions because of what I learned in in that room. I, I really did, and I I credit what what you taught to a great extent to that. Yeah, you know, it's it's like even in a conversation, if you actually actually really are present in the conversation, and what we find oftentimes, and you can see it when you're speaking with people. They're thinking about what they're going to say next. They're not taking in actually what you're saying. I mean, we do that. We we all do that. Sure. But, but if you catch yourself doing that, <laughs> at least then you know you can you can you can let let the other land on you. Listen, really, moment to moment, moment to moment <clears throat> is really talking and really listening. That's what it. <clears throat> that's what it comes down to. Really talking. I. Always want to know where did you come from before you you know were at Paramount and you were uh, um, doing uh, training there and teaching there. What what was your you know where where were you born? Where'd you grow up? You know that that kind of stuff. Okay, I'll share that with you. Um, I was born in New York City in what was called in those days White Harlem. I, I lived actually a block away from George Carlin. And I went to the same grammar school that he went to, which was Corpus Christi. But then when I was eight years old, my parents bought a home in Jersey City, in the Greenville section of Jersey City, which is down by Newark Bay. And at that time, it was a very, uh, it was a wonderful place to live. It was, you know, it was very predominantly, uh, I guess it was Irish, Italian, and Polish. And then, yeah. there, was, and then there was the Catholic Church, St. Paul's Church up on the hill. And it was a very, very, everybody knew everybody. It was very friendly. Everyone had had gardens, had trees. People grew there, had peach trees and apple trees and tomatoes and things like that. And uh, I mean, my parents actually did not lock the door of, of the house. And I used to work uh, setting up pins in a bowling alley, you know. You know, let's say I was maybe 12 or 13 years old and I would walk home sometimes one or two o'clock in the morning by myself and there was never a worry or a care or a consideration that's how that's the way life was back in those days when I look at it now and I, I, I have friends in New York their child their children have never ever been out on the street to play alone by themselves and I, I, I think, my God, you know, what has happened to our world? We, we've lost something because my, my father-in-law um, once told me he was like eight or nine years old. They lived in they lived in Manhattan and he took the train to the Bronx to go watch Babe Ruth play baseball for the Yankees by himself. His father like gave him a quarter and said, you know, get out of here. There you go. And it was probably a nickel. <laughs> a, you know, whatever, a nickel, you know. Well, that was for the hot dog and the subway ride, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, there, you know, there, there were a lot of great things uh, to go back to my story. So then I, uh, I went to a school in Jersey City called St. Paul's. I was a terrible student, the worst. I could, there were certain things, I don't know what it was. I had some kind of learning problems I couldn't get. And so then I, I managed to graduate, and then I went to Snyder High School in Jersey City, 
and I actually quit school at 16 years old. It was so painful for me, so embarrassing for me to get called upon by a teacher to go up to the blackboard and, you know, I mean, I would just, I would freeze, I would blank, I couldn't solve mathematical problems. I don't know what it was. It was some part of my brain. I mean, I guess I had some kind of learning problem. You, you, you did. So then I took a job in a factory making 80 cents an hour. And it was set, it was really like slavery. And at the end of the day, I, I would come home and I would just collapse. I mean, it was, I, I was so tiring. So much. What, what did what did you make at this factory? Well, they made plastic products, shoe bags, things like that. You know, and it was it was an interesting experience. But then, wow, my good luck! I got a job making a dollar an hour working for American Export Lines in Jersey City. A friend of mine joined the army, and he said, "Hey, Bob, you you know, I was able to wear some you know nice clothes, and every day." I would I would go to Pier F in Jersey City and then I would I was a messenger boy and I would go around to all the docks, Pier 84 in Manhattan. Uh, there was a dock that they had in Red Hook, uh, Brooklyn. There was another one in Staten Island and I would just make the whole tour. I, I, every day I was on the Staten Island ferry and I would pick up what they call the books of Leyden, which had all the information. What was the, you know, the barrels of uh, olive oil, the cashew nuts, you know, and it, it, it was all around the Mediterranean, import, export, American export lines. I did that. Then one night when I was 17 years old, I was down the shore with a friend of mine and uh, we got our car got stuck on the side of the road. And then uh, we didn't have the money to, to, to pull it out. And this tow truck driver, uh, he, uh, he wouldn't give us a break. You know, we said, look, you know, we'll, we'll leave our driver's license. We'll leave you my watch. And then suddenly a cop came along. He was a rent-a-cop from one of the bars down there and he'd been drinking. And uh, then we got into a, uh, a confrontation, got into an argument. And then there was some other guys that came in and they were yelling and it got very boisterous. Anyway, <clears throat> the cop came after me and he had a nightstick and he was, he was really ready to to, to kill me. So I, I took off and he shot me. Yeah, I was shot in the back. And then he dragged me by my hair and I had the kind of Elvis Presley long hair. And then he threw me in the gutter and I, I, I laid in the gutter, uh, you know, and I thought, oh my God, you know, I mean, the, the water, I could just see the mixture of the water and the blood, you know, and I uh, somehow or other miraculously, uh, it wasn't an ambulance, but some kind of a pickup truck or something like that. And they drove me over to uh, Red Bank, which was, I guess, the nearest hospital. And, um, you know, the priest came, I got the last rites, the whole thing. They found out I was Catholic. Um, and then uh, I spent my 18th birthday in the hospital. But that turned my life around. That, that event turned my life around because I said to myself, I said, okay, that's it. From now on, I'm not listening to anyone. I'm not listening to my mother or my father or the Catholic Church or all of that stuff. Yeah, I was angry. I was very, very angry <clears throat> at the time about what happened, the injustice of what happened. Well, what happened was that the guys on the waterfront that I knew because I was a messenger boy felt sorry for me and actually gave me a job working on the waterfront as a checker. 
So suddenly, I was making more money than my father, but I was involved with some very, very, um, <laughs> the waterfront. I was involved in the, in the waterfront. Anyway, I did that for a couple of years, and it was a great thing. It was a great thing for my self-esteem, I suppose. But then I knew I was heading down the wrong path, and my father used to beg me every day, Bobby, please, please, you don't want to be around these people. So then I quit, and then I did my first year of summer stock. In 1960, I went to the Lake Whalen Playhouse in Massachusetts. And a director came through, and he was directing a play with Jan Murray called Make a Million. And guess who that director was? I don't know, Bob. Who? Wynne Handman. And okay. I auditioned for the role of Henry Whipple, and I heard a voice in the darkness of the theater say, Bob McAndrew, you're very good. That must have blown your mind. Well, that night I went down by the lake, and I, I was crying. Because he was a kid really, he was a kid who really suffered from what is called low self-esteem. And there was finally something that I was able to actually do and do it well. And then that was the beginning. And then I won a scholarship to the American Theater Wing, a two-year scholarship. I didn't like it. So I called Wynne Hanman. I said, hey, remember me? He said, I sure do. I said, well, I would love to study with you. He said, all right, hold on. A few weeks later, I got a phone call. And then I started to study with Wen, And that transformed my entire life. Well, some of the, in fact, most of my listeners really don't know who Wynn is. So maybe you want to give a little uh, background because he's a, a legend in uh, New York theater circles and acting teaching circles. Well, I would say, I would say that Wynn is the most successful acting teacher uh, that we've ever had in America. By that, I mean that he, he, he didn't get the kind of notoriety that Stella Adler had or that, when, uh, or that uh, Lee Strasberg had or anything like that. But look at his roster of students. I mean, Alec Baldwin, uh, James Kahn. Uh, Richard Gere. R Richard Gere. Denzel Washington. Michael Douglas. Michael, you know, we could go on and on and on. The list is like hundreds and, and, and all of them, anyone that you talk to, and I spoke to a lot of them, will tell you the greatest days of their life was studying with Wynne Hanman. You know, and these are people that studied with Strasbourg and studied with Stella, blah, blah, blah. But so I think Wynne was the best of all, the greatest. And you shared that studio. So that studio on what was that, 55th or 56th Street, that was Wynn's studio as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not there anymore. Oh, it's not? No, no, it's it, there's it's a high rise now. That's a shame. Yeah. There should be there should be a plaque. Well, you know, that studio was a place where uh in the back, it was kind of like a servant's quarters, but in the backyard there, there were uh, it's it's where they kept horses. Uh -huh. back in, yeah, back in the 19th century. And wow. so, you know, and then Meisner, of course, you know, had that back studio. He, he taught in the back studio. Yes. You know, I worked with one of his, uh, a woman who went on to be a teacher. Uh, do you remember uh, Joanne Barron? 
Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, she was. I was in a play at the Seventy Eighth Street Theater Lab. One of the you know, one of my one of my credits, Bob. Oh. But um, she was in the play that I that I did uh, up uh, on Seventy Eighth Street at the Seventy Eighth Street Theater Lab, and she had given me her card saying, "You know, you really should come." And I was studying with you, by the way, at the time. And um, she said, "You know, you should really audition for Sanford's class." And you know, I had a loyalty to Bob McAndrew. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, she's a kind of a legend, Joanne Barron. I don't know if she's still around, but I mean, she's in California. I looked her up. Okay, all right, yeah, yeah, she's got a reputation as a great, as a fine teacher. And and I'll come back to Win because you know Win passed away from COVID, so you know, which was really sad. But how has that changed your business as far as being able to teach people? Because you know, you you you, you couldn't be in the room for the last couple of years. Yeah, no, it, it was terrible, actually. Uh, my business pretty much fell apart. And so I was teaching on Zoom. Like and, we are now. Yeah, and that's really not much fun, you know, because, you you know, it's, uh, it's a whole different story. <clears throat> but thank God now I'm actually back to doing physical classes, doing in-person classes. But, you know, Harlan, something I, I wanted to share with you. I've, I've, I'm, now, um, I'm now doing a lot of screenwriting. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing also for the past uh, 20 years or so. And um, as a script doctor or, or, or scripts that you're, 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 um, that you're um, trying to get done yourself and looking for financing. Yes, yes that's, that's right. Yeah. The second one. The second one. <laughs> scripts that I've done, scripts that I've written. And I have a few writing credits. Uh, there was a movie called Shadow Magic that was made about 20 years ago. And then, you know, I did that documentary about the about the men that live on Skid Row, and that won a lot of awards. And I had, you know, distribution for 20 years with that movie. It kind of kept me alive for a long time. Now, but, yeah, it's going well. The writing is going really, really well. I've got, you know, I don't want to talk about it right now because, but there are some, you know, some people that are interested in some of the material. And are, are these historical in nature or are there human, hu, you know, just stories about people living certain kinds of lives? Can you give us some insight from there? Well, one of them uh, is called Long Lost Love. And it's about a man who lives up in the mountains of Oregon uh, who decides one day that he's going to look up his high school sweetheart, his first love. And uh, he's not really computer savvy, but he... He, uh, he calls on a woman that lives next door and the woman says, yeah, I found out, you know, she's living, she's in a rest home in New Jersey. Well, he decides the next day he's going to get in his Winnebago with his dog, Buddy Boy, and he's going to drive across the country uh, to see her. Well, when he arrives, he finds out that she has Alzheimer's and the, the supervisor says she may not know who you are. Well, naturally, he's shocked, but he does go in to see her and they open up the curtain and she's lying there kind of shriveled up. She has no idea who he is or where she is or whatever. Of course, he's shocked, but he says, it's okay, don't worry. You know, they're all feeling sorry for me. He says, don't worry. He says, she doesn't know me now, but she will the next day. So then he comes every day and he starts to visit her and then he decides, you know what, I'm going to change the sheets on her bed. She doesn't need to sleep on these white clinical bed sheets. So he buys lavender sheets, 
And then he starts giving her foot rubs and, he, and flowers and perfume and things like that. And little by little by little, she starts to come around. She starts eating again. And he takes her into the cafeteria and he feeds her every day. She doesn't have her speech, but she starts coming around. And then people <clears throat> in the institution, in the, rest, in the nursing home, start to see, my God, she's transforming. Well, what happens is that her daughter finds out about Mac, it's his name, Mac. <clears throat> she find, they find out about him and that the mother is actually making progress. And she doesn't want that because her mother is a very, very wealthy woman. And they're just hoping that she's just going to fade out and they're, and they're going to get the money. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the... Yeah. And there's your conflict. <laughs> there's, there's your conflict, right. Yeah, so that's the story. That's all done. And there are some people that are interested in that one. Yeah. It turns out to have a wonderful, wonderful, happy ending. But not before, not before they, they go through hell. Uh, they really go through it. Now, you're, you know, you're a little bit older than me, not too much older, but you're a little bit older. I mean, did you ever think about Hey, I, I want to slow down. I, you know, I'm I'm 67, gonna be 68 soon. I mean, do you ever think about retiring at all? No, no. In fact, I'm actually more productive now than I've ever been in my entire life. And why is that? Why is that? I don't know. I think you get a little bit older and you get a little bit wiser, and you love what you're doing. And there's just not enough hours in the day, actually. You know, between I mean, writing a screenplay. That's a really, really, I'm, I'm on a new one right now, but writing uh -huh. a screenplay, that, that's like, wow, that takes a lot of, you're excited, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, you know, got to, I mean, it's so competitive right now, that field right now is so competitive. So if you don't have something that grabs a producer within the first 10 pages, forget about it. Right. That was the same thing about when you slated your name when you were auditioning for you know, whatever, if you didn't grab them in the first 15 seconds, you were dead. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, people do these self tapes right now. Yeah. And I tell them, look, it takes 10 seconds before a casting director makes up their mind. So right. you, better, you, better, you better be with it. Yeah, on top of it. You know, I'm trying to see where's that picture of Dorian Gray behind you because you're, you're ageless. Oh, I don't know about that. No, I, I, maybe I look okay this morning. I don't, I don't know. No, you look good. Oh, I feel good. I feel good, Harlan. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the main thing. Well, you know, when, when people talk about, um, you know, building a strong character, <clears throat> what do you think the essence of uh, telling an actor about how to build a strong character? What do you think the... Well, you know, oftentimes, like... Uh, um, an actor starts to work on a role and I say to them, okay, great. Where do you start? How do you start? And they'll say this and they'll say that. And I'll say, no, that's not it. You start with yourself. You look in the mirror, <clears throat> you find the character first. So you find the character first within yourself. And then people look at you with, with their mouth open. And then I, I quote to them, <clears throat> and uh, something that Michael Howard told me, heaven and hell, right within your own heart. I mean, actually, he said, St. Francis of Assisi and Adolf Hitler, all of that is, is, you know, but you actually find 
Right. You know, sometimes I say to people, all right, well, what would you do if you had to play Donald Trump? How would you start? Where would you begin? And the way that you begin to work on any character is you first look inside of yourself and then you say to yourself, well, okay, can I, how can I identify with this character? Where, where do I start? And that's the way Daniel Day-Lewis works, you see? So you, you start with yourself and then little by little by little you get to the point where you know what the character has in their refrigerator. I mean, that's how specific it gets. You know, if you open up your refrigerator, you know what's in there. You know, you know, they got the beers on the bottom shelf and the cheese over here, and maybe you put bread in there to keep it fresh. So maybe this character opens up the refrigerator, there's nothing in there, an old jar of mustard that's been <clears throat> in there for, for the last year. So you and you know what the character you know what the you know what she has in her pocketbook you know right. what he has in his pocket detail. You mentioned Daniel Day Lewis because you know I had read I don't know last year that he was preparing for this role where he was playing a cobbler he, you know he, so he learned how to make shoes. That's exactly right. You know and then you know people ask him well how do you get the voice how do you find the voice for the character. You know, there will be blood, uh, Lincoln. How do you find that voice? And, 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 and he says, oh, he said, that's a tough one. He said, that might take me uh, six months or a year before, before I actually find the voice. But, you know, sometimes when you actually get that voice, when you find that voice, you know, like I, for example, if I started talking to you like that right now, you know, it's been so long, I can't even remember anymore why I did it. Suddenly, everything starts changing with, within me just by, by finding that voice. I could actually feel it just now, kind of, you know, uh, this old cowboy guy, you know. So, but, but you see, if you do that stuff too soon, and if you put the cart before the horse, then you have an empty shell. You have, like, something superficial. J. Lewis doesn't do that. He builds it. He starts with himself. He'll find that killer inside, you know, and then and then little by little by little, he'll, he's, he adds those attributes. You know, an interesting story about uh, Lincoln. On the last day of shooting, Steven Spielberg went down into Daniel Day-Lewis's trailer. This was after how many how many months did it take to make that film? I'm not sure. Four. Probably over a year. Yeah, one of my students, Gloria Rubin, was in that was in that film. Sure. Um, you know, anyway, Steven Spielberg went down to uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's trailer and uh, he said for the first time, Daniel Day-Lewis spoke in, with his voice. He said, oh, hi, Steven, I'm, I'm so glad, you know. Steven Spielberg started crying because during that entire time, the entire time, however long it took, he never heard any other voice except the voice of Lincoln. Yeah, and I had read that he had actually asked people to call him Mr. Lincoln during the when when he wasn't being you know you know wasn't in a scene, but was walking around you know the set. Yeah, well, is... when, when he did that first role uh, of the poet, the Irish poet Christie, who was a paraplegic. Yes, my you know, uh, my left foot. My left foot. You know, he, 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 would, he would insisted that the crew carry him to the next location. 
I mean, he he was physically transported. I mean, he 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 wouldn't walk. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, uh -huh. that's how, you know, and that that's the kind of a commitment that he makes to acting. Now, the thing about acting that is fascinating is that, you know, most of us go through life, and you know, let's say you're a doctor, you're a doctor, you know, you go to the office, you're a father, you're. Uh, you know, you're an uncle, you're this, you're that. So it's, it's one role that you pretty much play throughout your entire life. But when you're an actor, you play many roles. You, you have the opportunity to go inside and, and play many parts. Sure. Good people, bad people. Uh, and that's what's fascinating about being an actor, I suppose. Now, when you lived up in, in, up in upper Manhattan, did you know, you mentioned Carlin, did you... Did he know him? No, I was only a kid. I didn't find this out until until just recently, actually, because I started watching some of his stuff, you know, some of his monologues. I thought to myself, my guy, he wouldn't be able to get away with that today. I mean, the stuff that he was so outrageous, the stuff that he said, you know, we're living in this kind of day and age right now where you really uh, have to censor yourself. You have to you, you have to be so careful. But, but don't but, these kids in but, college because college was a place that I mean I never went to college but college was always a place where you could get away from your family and your background and find freedom of expression and now I understand college kids tell me they got to be very careful there's a lot of censoring going on self-censoring oh yeah uh, absolutely in fact my son and I have had uh, quite a bit of discussion about how that's somewhat dangerous for democracy that that's going on. But um, I, I think that in, in to a great extent that it's also the marketplace, right? You know, uh, you know I heard Seinfeld complain all oh, I can't, you can't play, you can't play colleges anymore because, you know, they, you know, will protest me or, you know, other, other comics say that. And it's this, you know, anti, uh, I guess they call it woke and all this other stuff. And I say bullshit on that a little bit because we've always had self-censorship. You didn't, you didn't have, um, you didn't have certain kinds of comics going out on Ed Sullivan and, you know, talking about, you know, doing dick jokes. It just didn't do it. It, there, there was a self-censorship going on there. I mean, um, so I, I think that it's just, it's also just a change in, in mores and uh, of your audience and so the really good um the really good comic mm -hmm. would either adapt or a really good actor or whatever is going to adapt to that because you know what that that audience doesn't want to see that now you may want to play a place where they do see that but i don't necessarily buy in to that there's always been self-censorship you're not going to go to the the ladies club on on saturday when they're where, where you've been invited and, and and start talking about you know whatever genitalia joke that you can think of it just it just doesn't play yeah, Do yeah well you know i was watching a movie yesterday just out of research i was watching a movie called horrible bosses i mean i thought to myself god they couldn't make that movie today it wouldn't it wouldn't get made that's all that movie was only made 10 years ago yeah but just just take a look at it review it i mean it's so over the top outrageous the stuff that jennifer aniston is doing in that dental office and everything and i just wonder i say i don't know i mean because 
I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in this world of screenwriting. And I mean, I'll get people say to me, oh no, Bob, you can't write that in your script now. You can't, you can't write that. I go, really? Yeah. So there's a lot of watering down now. So, but I say, if you think that that's truth and you think that that's important to say, and you either find a way to say it or say it and say, F it, this is, you're going to have to tell me you're not going to buy me, but I'll find somebody else that's going to buy me. I think that there was, yeah, I, yeah. I, I just, I, I have a problem with people saying that, that it's, it, it, that this is necessarily bad. Do, do, I, 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 I say either stand by what you believe in and stand up to, to what, for it and say F it or find another way to say it, but still find the truth. There's got to be other ways to tell, to tell a story. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I, I actually try to do that. So uh, when I made my documentary uh, on Skid Row, I had a chance to qualify for the Academy Awards, the best documentary. But what they told me, they said, you've got to edit out that language. I said, well, if I edit out that language, that street language of these guys on the street, I said, then, you know, it's not going to be the same movie. So I didn't do it. I, did, I didn't edit it out. I mean, maybe I would have won the Academy Award. I don't know. But anyway, I, I stuck to, I, I, I just, just couldn't do it, you know. And, and I think that it, 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 you, you, you took a stand and, and that's just as important as making the movie in of itself. Why, why destroy the, the brushstroke? Yeah. You can't handle the brushstroke too bad. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. You know, go ahead. Having, what's interesting for me is that, you know, having, having, these, having this age that I have, uh, you know, I have some uh, uh, perspective. I mean, I, I, I have contrast, I mean, I can look at it and I can tell you that, yeah, when I was a little kid and I set up pins in the bowling alley and I would walk home at, at you know, 12 or one o'clock in the morning and my parents never worried and we didn't lock the door. You know, I mean, thank God I have those memories because kids today, they, they, don't, they don't have those memories. They're growing up in a world right now. It's like, you know, and everyone, you know, a lot, I talk to a lot of young women. I don't want to have children, not in this world. You know, and I think, oh my gosh, that's that's sad. That is sad. I think that people think that this is the worst time in human history. And being an amateur historian that I am, it's not even close. I mean, the technology, the ability to communicate, um, had, had, and I'm not saying that there's not problems because clearly global, you know, global warming and, and all of that is a threat to the planet. But, you know, um, I knew the scientist who worked at Hoffman LaRoche that used to be on Route, Route 3, if you remember that in New Jersey. Yeah, I do remember that, yeah. And he, you know, and we went to the same swim club. He was he was in his twenties at this point, and I was in my teens, and we were talking about shit. And he, and he said, "Do you know what the greatest killer of people was a hundred years ago?" So this is the late seventies. I said, "I don't know what." He said, "Disease. Yeah. We don't have that stuff yeah. anymore. Yeah. Right. So there, there, the, the, the things that 
confronted a parent a hundred in 150 years ago was most of your, you had 10 kids, you know, three survived. Yeah. So you tell me that that world's better than this world. Go fuck yourself. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. right. Well, you know, one thing I want to share one thing with you that I'm hoping to do. Uh, I'm hoping someday to uh, do a Ted talk, a Ted talk. Okay. And I'll tell you what my, what my theme is. What, what, what my concept is, I believe that somehow or other, we from a very, very early age are not really taught about Mother Earth and how precious Mother Earth is and how we somehow or other just destroy her. And, and, and we're not taught from, from, you know, we have our mother, we love our mother, know our relationship with our mother but we need to be taught as children as children who we are that we live in a galaxy that out of all of the planets this planet is the gem the gem of the milky way the gem of our galaxy that we have air we have water we have everything everything i mean you know man is the one that screws things up but but we need to we need to love and respect and if that's taught to children, I mean, right away, that's the first lesson that has to be taught right away to understand that you're on a planet, that it's a very special planet and it needs to be nurtured. Mother needs to be taken care of. So I, I want to I want to do that. I want to do that talk. Well, I think that it would be very noble. I mean, that's really related to the, the native peoples of, of, of North America. You know, the first peoples in North America, they, that's, a, that's the essence of what they taught their children, right? right? I mean, we're only renting this. We don't own this, right? Right. No, no, we don't. We don't. So we got, you know, we got to give it back to the landlord. Yeah, exactly. Bob, <laughs> gosh. How did we get to this point? Well, right? it's a conversation, you know, it, it just goes the way it wants to go. Right. It goes the way it wants to go. What's in, what, other than script writing, what else is on, on your plate for the next whatever? Well, I'm going to Paris. I'm doing a workshop in Paris. Uh, it's going to be a 48 hour workshop, six days. It's, it's very intense. And, uh, and then hopefully I'll be doing another one in Madrid. And uh, I'm still teaching here in the city, here in New York. It, it, and and you, you, you used to have a, um, a studio in, in California. That's, you've closed that up? Yeah, I mean, I want to go back out there again and do these workshops, you know. But, uh, you know, I think now, hopefully, uh, the, uh, the COVID is over now. I mean, you know, hopefully. That hopefully. Hopefully. safe to come back and do the in-person things again. And then little by little by little, I'm, I'm hoping to go out there again, yes. Now, I'm a grandfather. Now, I remember you had a son, yes? I'm a grandfather. Okay, how many grandkids you have? I have one, his name is Connor. Connor, Connor McAndrew. Connor McAndrew, great Irish name. Oh, that is a great Irish name. You know, I asked my mother, you know, my parents are from Ireland. Yeah, they're all they're all gone now. Uh -huh. One of my family is gone. I'm the only one. But anyway, when I was a kid, I said to her, I said, hey, mom, I said, how come you never gave us like Irish names? So she looked at me, she says, Bobby, 
she said you would have been beaten up you know right having a name like sean or ian or, or or something like that you would have been beaten up so so we gave you the name seamus yeah seamus we gave you the names bobby bobby billy and tommy that was it yeah <laughs> So that was pretty smart, I think. Yeah, you, you know that that that's the immigrant survivor yeah, in them. Yeah, that, that was a tough neighborhood where we grew up. I can imagine. Yeah, that was that was. I saw a lot of stuff at a very very early age. My dad came from a nearby neighborhood from okay. there, but they moved out to Passaic. Okay, well there you go. Yeah. So, gosh, Bob, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Harlan. It was a privilege, really, to see you again and to. Just, with you and i'm so happy that you're doing well oh i'm i'm fine i mean what, what more could i want i i have a loving wife i got grandchildren i got kids that you know dad's a doofus but he's our doofus you know he's they they I'll all love me and what, what, i'll tell pamer i saw you well tell pamer he's got a fan a, a really big fan from that Maisel. um scene it's the one on the park bench eating an ice cream it's just it just blew my mind right and check oh. him out check him out on the good wife oh um, i have i used to watch that religiously oh, okay. i watch that show yeah. so i do know what you're talking about so i'm gonna i'm gonna make a point that i'm gonna keep in touch okay and if you come to dc which is where i live i live in the suburbs mm -hmm. let me know and i'll take you to um where the native peoples lived around here because uh i have a little historical tour i put together of the native peoples so you might find that interesting people that were here fifteen thousand years ago wow yeah well you know every once in a while someone will ask me if i want to go down to that area yeah to a workshop uh, it's, it sort of never came together but who knows well i will tell you there's uh there's a theater and film. There's a lot of theater and film that obviously it's done around here. And there, I know that there are actors that make a home in in the Baltimore area, which I'm about an hour away from Baltimore in D.C. I live, you know, in the D.C. suburbs. So there, there are people like that, and they and a lot of actors do a lot of voice work around here for various political, um, uh, I would say uh, organizations that you know there's a lot of work from a voice standpoint so well, even though i don't do that if ever anybody wants to reach me they can go on to my website bobmcandrew.com and you know all the information is on there super and if anyone wants to sign up for my international uh you know uh work i'm you know they can sign up on there as well cool you know i you know i, I think that you're gonna you're gonna get I mean, I don't have a big audience, but, you know, maybe you'll get a couple of hits out of this thing. We hope so. <laughs> All right, man. You take All right. care. All right. You take care of yourself. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. You too.